Let us run this race with patience. Let's turn to, I want to do two passages today because I'm introducing something in the scriptures in Romans. I'm simply going to call it the royal motif. The psalmist said there, my heart is indicted by a theme about the king. And that's exactly what my heart is indicted with this. The royal motif in Romans, the epistle series called RTE. But to do that, I want to look Proverbs 16 and John 8 to start with. There's a tremendous unity of this through the scriptures and it's the narrative is told and comes into a climactic phase in Romans, the royal motif. I see Miss Roberta, you've brought, is it Charles? Charles, would you please stand because you know what? We had back in the 80s, early, actually 70s and 80s, Roberta and three others had this magnificent quartet. They're half here today. Welcome, Charles. Good to see you. Appreciate you being here today. And... What else did I say? What else can I say? It's good to see all of you here. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, commentators have a problem. They don't know who he is in the second half or his enemies, but we could use both. When a man's ways please the Lord, he, that man, makes his enemies to be at peace with him, or he, the Lord, makes his enemies to be at peace with him. The Hebrew version is a little stronger. He will make his enemies to be his allies Allies. So please note that phrase and be, let your heart treasure it. When a man's ways please the Lord, Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways please the Lord. Now look at John 8. This, to me, is the key verse of John, more than John 3.16, which is often related to. This, to me, gets to the heart of the matter. So Jesus said to them, those to whom he's speaking are largely his enemies, his opponents. And even though some believed in him, In verse 30, right down the road here, they still argued with him. They wanted to say that they were qualified or even justified or rectified by being Abraham's children, Abraham's seed. So Jesus said to them in verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man... This predicts his own crucifixion being lifted up on the cross. Then you will know that I am. Ego, Amy, is what it says here. You can add anything to it in John. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. You are the branches. I am that I am. Yahweh is what he's saying. And the way that we know him is definitively crucified, lifted up, then buried, resurrected, lifted up this time in exaltation and glory to the right hand of the Father as the king of the universe. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own initiative. The one who sent me 
This is divine mission number one. Father sends the son. The one who sent me is with me. The way this reads in the tense is he's always with me. He has not abandoned me. Now he's speaking here already from the standpoint of being lifted up on the cross. He prays, my God, why have you abandoned me? Not because God has abandoned him. Because right here he says the father does not leave me alone. But because he is praying in the royal voice of the descendant of David. He is the royal descendant of David. He has not abandoned me. He's actually saying I don't want you to misunderstand when I'm lifted up and I'm crucified. And I pray why have you abandoned me my God my God. I want you to know he has not abandoned me. Paul agrees when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. This is how God destroys his enemies. He doesn't destroy the people. He destroys the enmity and makes them his friends. But listen to what Jesus says here. I always do the things that please him. Yahweh, the Father. Now relate that to Proverbs sixteen seven. When a man's ways please the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I always do the things that please him, Jesus said. But just as the Father has taught me, I'm saying these things even now. He's saying, even now as I speak to you, I'm saying to you words that my Father taught me. The man in view in Proverbs 16, 7, whose ways invariably please God, is the son of man of John eight twenty eight. When you lift up the son of man, the man whose ways always please the Lord. His entire life in the flesh was always... The Greek word means invariably, without variation, without turning to the left or the right, doing the things that please the Father who sent him. He sent him here as the word is pempo, which means to be sent on a mission. And it's like apostello, which means also to be sent with a commission. In John 3.17, the Father sent him on a mission by which God would save the world. His enemies are the world. His ways please God. And God has made his enemies to be at peace with him. This is a narrative that runs through Romans. This is the narrative of the king. My heart is indicted with this theme, this motif. This man then. This son of man is none other than the man Christ Jesus. The only mediator between God and man inasmuch as he is God and he is man. This son of man whose ways always please God the father is none other than the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2 5 whose pleasing obedience to God the Father, to his will. And what is God our Savior's will? That all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, the truth that's embodied in his Son. And so Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, his pleasing obedience to God his Father led to giving himself as a ransom for all, Humanity, First Timothy 2.6. And that's in accordance with the Father's will. So Paul interprets this 
as the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ. For Paul, there's only one righteous person, and it's Jesus Christ. For God, there's only one whom he can say, this is my son, the son of my love, in whom I am well pleased. He is the faithful one. He is the righteous one. He is the king. So Paul interprets this pleasing of the father as the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, to the extent of death by crucifixion, Philippians 2.8. He became obedient even to the extent of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name above all names, at the mention of which every knee will genuflect. Listen carefully. Every tongue will acknowledge, listen carefully, that's from Isaiah 45, 23, in which it says, every tongue will acknowledge allegiance to me. Why? Because the ways of this man pleased God, and God made even his enemies to be at peace with him, and his enemies is all of us. For all sinned. And while we were still enemies, that's all humankind in all of its times, Christ died. If while we were enemies, God reconciled us, how much more, now that we're reconciled, will we be saved by his resurrection life? Romans 5.10. So I'm translating this motif, this theme of a royal personage to Romans. Because ultimately, Paul is a herald of the king. And he says that. He's a slave of Christ Jesus, a willing servant. And as a slave, he's a courier, he's a herald. He goes about and proclaims the ascension to the throne of the universe of a royal person named Jesus Christ. Royal for two reasons. One, he is a descendant of the seed of the royal line of David, according to the flesh, Romans 1.3. And he has been designated God's own son by his resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. Second Timothy 2.8. Remember, Timothy, my gospel, Paul says, by which Jesus Christ a descendant of David, is raised from the dead. Raised from the dead to rule forever. This death by crucifixion was what Jesus meant when he said, when you lift up the Son of Man. And we know the other famous time when he said that in John twelve thirty two, If I'm lifted up, I will draw all to myself. That's an irresistible drawing because it's the same as the dragnet where the fish are in the net, they're dragged to shore. No fish is going to argue when he's in the net. Happened to me. Happened to you. It is precisely then when he's lifted up And it's only then that we know who God is definitively. God is love, and he loves us this much. It is precisely when Jesus is lifted up that the Father does not abandon the Son. When he prays, why have you abandoned me? He is citing Psalm 22.1, which is a psalm of David. He is showing himself to be the royal descendant of David according to the flesh. My father has not left me alone. I don't want you to misunderstand my cries. He has not left me alone. He who sent me is with me. He who sent me is always with me. He who sent me 
on a mission to save the world is always with me. And God was in Christ, with Christ, when Christ was made sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. It was precisely then that God had not abandoned him. Jesus always did the things that pleased the Father. And when a man's ways please God, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That peace, that is, as Colossians 1.20 says, through the blood of his cross. He has made peace. And therefore, he reconciles all things in the heavens and earth, thrones and dominions on down. Through the peace that he has made, through the blood of the cross of the son of his love, in whom he is well pleased. There's a lot of verses in that. I can't quote them all. There's 30 or 40 in that last statement. So we'll get a few of them. Even while we were still his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Is that because he was pleased with us or because he was pleased with his son? The father made the enemies of Christ the man who always pleased him to be his allies. Allies, A-L-L-I-E-S, kind of like allegiance. Now, that's not something we see in history. Everybody doesn't claim to be his ally. There's more enemies than you can count. A lot of them are in churches. Because they preach another gospel about another Jesus than this one. But the ultimate is God swears by his own self. Every knee will genuflect to me, he says. Every tongue will acknowledge allegiance to me. So then, this is how God's righteousness and justice destroys the enemies of his Messiah. How does he destroy destroy the enemies? (laughs) By making them to be at peace with him. Now, let's say that the negotiations with NOCO, North Korea, say they work. Well, you can say, well, I wish we had destroyed North Korea by a nuclear holocaust. That'll get them off the planet. And that sounds really macho, but the measure of a man is never macho, but virtue. Virtue produced by the Holy Spirit, beginning with humility. Let's say it works, and I'm just using this as a hypothetical then our enemies have been destroyed if through negotiations that work, our enemies have been destroyed by becoming friends. That's how God does things. God destroys the enemies of his son by making them his friends. So I could say, Say I knew a friend who once slandered and maligned and hated and professed hatred for me, and then all of a sudden something happened, something occurred in which that person became my friend. And I'll say, you know what? You're one of my destroyed enemies. Not because God killed you, but because God reconciled you and I together. So the friends of Jesus Christ are simply his destroyed enemies. God doesn't destroy. He didn't come to destroy, but to save. The false shepherd comes to destroy. I have come to give life. So he destroys his enemies by destroying the enmity between them and himself. By his death in the body of his flesh through death comes to mind. In the body of his flesh through death, says Ephesians 2.13 through 15. God has destroyed the enmity, in that case between Jews and Gentiles, but a greater 
thing happened. God destroyed the enmity between his enemies and himself in the body of Christ's flesh through death. So Proverbs 16, 7, in a nutshell, is the narrative that's put forth all throughout John's gospel. It's the narrative. It's the coherent motif. Moreover, it's the narrative that's put forth in Romans, the epistle. All have sinned, Romans 3.23, and there is none righteous, Romans 3.10. So the righteous one was sent from God. No man has ever ascended to heaven on his own merits except for the Son of Man who descended first. And he was lifted up on the cross like Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness so that all who looked were healed. All who turned or were turned were saved. Turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved, says Isaiah 45, 22, an irresistible command of God. Followed by 23, I am telling you that every knee will bow to me. In other words, my call, let all the ends of the earth turn to me and be saved, will be realized in verse 23 of Isaiah 45, because I'm telling you now, God says, man doesn't say this, man doesn't get this, the natural mind can't fathom this. Every knee will genuflect to me. And that's not a forced genuflection in which God then takes his enemies and throws them into hell. That's a willing, worshipful genuflection because Paul interpreted it in Romans 14, 11, Every tongue will sing my praise, will praise me. Enemies don't praise. People who are forced to genuflect don't praise. So, we've said that many times before. The man in view in Proverbs 16, 7 is nothing, none other than the royal descendant from the seed of David according to the flesh or according to hereditary descent. And the one who was designated to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. His death, burial, and resurrection is the means of or the path that he took to his ascent to the throne. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you is actually a royal statement uttered by ancient kings when another king ascended to the throne. The king would say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That is into the royal throne. To rule forever in God's case. It's a royal formula. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ by which he was the first begotten from the dead. The first. Many more to follow. God's got plans for a big family. And so his death and resurrection is the means of his ascent to the throne. As Jesus said in Luke 26, 27, O fools and slow of heart to believe, he said to the thick-headed disciples mourning his death, O fools and slow of heart to believe, ought not Christ to have suffered and to enter his glory? The Christ there is the royal name for Messiah, O Christos, throughout the Psalms especially, but also the Samuels and the Chronicles. The word Christ was for the king, the royal descendant. And all through Psalms, and I'm not going to quote many of them today, but this is the beginning of a series on the royal motif. All through the Psalms, when David had his psalm, he was always the one asking to be delivered. And he was the king. The king, God's king, God's elected king, was always in need of being saved and Proverbs, well, the one that comes to my mind most powerfully right now is Psalm 1849, where God delivers David. But the thing that the Psalms teach us is when the king receives deliverance or salvation from God through all his sufferings and troubles, 
He gives that same life to all his people. He gives the blessing and the benevolent gift of life to all his people. So when the king is delivered through suffering, the result is that all his people live. All his people receive that deliverance by their association with him. I think you might be getting the point. Jesus is the one whom God delivered from death. And he's the king. And so he gives the benefit of life to his people. Romans 5, 18 comes to mind. Jesus Christ gives life-giving justification to all mankind. Those are his people. As another David said to me this morning, another royal David, David Bradshaw, quoted Ezekiel 18.4 where God said, all souls are mine. All souls are mine. Who's God's people then? Oh, Israel? Who's God's people? Oh, the nations? Who's God's people? All souls are mine. I said to Dave, do you think that might mean that God's actually saying all lives matter to me? If they're mine. If there was a price paid to secure their salvation. All souls are mine, says God. You've been bought with a price. So have I. Therefore glorify God in your mortal bodies, which belong to him. 1 Corinthians 6.20. So it says, when he ascended to the throne of the universe at the right side of God in Hebrews 1.3, some people think Paul wrote that anonymously, he had already reconciled the human race to God in 2 Corinthians 5.19, and Hebrews 1.3 says, having made purification for sins. Sounds like he might be that lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No, we always interpreted that as he took away the sin of the church. Oh, you did? Oh, so you're one of his enemies still, huh? Well, he made you his friend through the cross, even though you're preaching a false gospel. So, Jesus is I am. The one who said I am that I am to Moses was saying he was capturing in himself all the verbal tenses. I am means I always was, John 1, 1. He who always was God, there never was a time when he wasn't, and who is God, and who always will be God, became flesh. How did he become flesh? He became flesh as a royal descendant of David. Both Joseph and Mary descended from the royal line. Joseph's was cut off. Mary's kept coming. He was the seed of the woman, therefore, not the seed of the man. In that sense, the seed of the woman. But he was also the son of Adam, and he became the final Adam. That's another subject, but it's still under the royal motif. So the I am is how we should look at salvation. People say now and not yet, capturing the present and the future. Or they say already, but then completely capturing the present and the future. But let's look at salvation from the standpoint of Yahweh who saves. The name Yeshua, Jesus means Yahweh who saves, the God who saves. He is the God who saves. What's he do? He saves. And so... Let's look at the tenses, the verbal tenses in Yahweh. I always was, I always have been, I am now, and I am now what I was, and I will be what I am now. And it also means I will be all that I need to be for you. You need water? I'm the water of life. You need bread? I'm the bread of life. You need life? You need light? I am the light of the world. I am the life of the age to come. So when we think of the verbal tenses involved in salvation, 
We have to think in the tenses of Yahweh who saves. We could say, when Yahweh says, I am, he says, I am the one who always was, who is, and always will be. His righteousness is his saving action. His saving act of justice. So the tenses in Yahweh are the tenses of salvation. In other words, we could say it this way. He was, and so he has saved all mankind. He is, and so he is saving those for whom Christ crucified is the power and wisdom of God. And he will save, for Jesus has said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all to myself. All Israel will be saved because God who is the God who saves now will be the God who saves when all Israel is saved at the coming of Christ. He is the God who said in Jesus, Jesus said, I never say anything on my own. It's the Father who speaks by me. So it was the Father who said, finished. Tetelestai. Or tetelestai. You want to be true to the accent that falls on the second syllable. And so all Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. And God has shut up all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles, all of humanity without exception, in disobedience. And this brings together the whole of Romans, really. He has shut up. All humanity in disobedience so that he may have mercy upon all in Romans 11.32. But it goes further in Romans. He has mercy on all the disobedient because of the singular faithful obedience of the one man whose ways always pleased him. And his obedience resulted in death by crucifixion in which and by which God reconciled all his enemies to him. The man Christ Jesus executed the singular faithful obedience, and that obedience resulted in many, which means all, in Romans 5.19, being made righteous in 5.18 and 19, all and many, same thing. So now we're hitting the road here. And I think this might have to work out into a series. The man Christ Jesus ways pleased Yahweh the Father. And so Yahweh the Father has reconciled all of his enemies to him. Therefore, now this, see if this rings true in your mind in Romans 5.1. And we're going to jump around in Romans as I close. Romans 5.1. You see, I'm a preacher of the gospel, but I'm also a teacher. If I teach these things out, then you and I can then preach them with the momentum of all these things behind us. That's what te- the value of teaching is, that you build up a tremendous momentum, and then you can say the gospel with great power because you got all this behind you. The man Christ Jesus ways please the Father. His obedience to the extent of death pleased the Father so much that the Father made all of his enemies to be at peace with him. So doesn't this make sense now? Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faithfulness, and this goes back to Romans 1.17, the faithfulness of the righteous one who died and was risen. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ is what is in focus here, and I'll show that to you again and again. I've only done it 17 or 18 times so far since Better Call Paul. Therefore, being justified by faithfulness, the word is ekpistios, same phrase in Romans 1.17. Therefore, being justified by faithfulness, that's Christ's faithfulness, not our faith. We have what? Peace with God. He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him because of his ways pleasing God, not mine. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know how you can paraphrase this? And one day I'm going to do a paraphrase of all of Romans. How, you know how to paraphrase it so that it makes sense? 
And that's what you're supposed to do. The preacher's supposed to do what Nehemiah 8.8 says. Read the scriptures, then give the sense. That gives the punch. Give the punch to what he's saying here. The punch is this. We could paraphrase it this way. Therefore, being justified by the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Who's we? Those who were all his enemies. Who were all his enemies? All? Consider the coherent account now. Now, here's Romans. We're teaching Romans. I got a very encouraging letter from a gentleman who's been listening to my teachings for decades. And he said, he said, the RTE series is the best by far ever. And that encouraged me because sometimes I get out of the pulpit and I walk across the hall and I say, like a comedian, man, I bombed. And even when you feel like you bombed, then somebody comes along and says, that was good. And you go, oh, I needed that. No, that's not true. But <laughs> So look at Romans 1, 4, 1 to 4, the coherent account. The gospel of God promised before, promised before in the writings of the prophets, and that includes the writings of the Psalms. They're all about God's son, Jesus, the royal seed of David, raised from the dead and declared to be the son of God. Look how he hits the ground running here, to use an overused metaphor that I use too much. Romans 1.1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, effectively summoned to be an apostle, set apart and limited to the task of preaching the gospel of God, please notice this, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy writings, and please notice that this goes right into verse 3 saying concerning his son. He's talking here about all the prophetic writings were concerning his son. Haven't you read what all the prophets said? Jesus said that the Christ or the messianic king must enter his glory through sufferings. Doesn't that make sense to you? In other words, you guys that are depressed on the road to, to Emmaus haven't seen that the whole message of all the prophets and the Psalms and the, the law is about me. It's about me going through sufferings to enter glory. And when I went through sufferings to enter to, into glory, guess what? You were crucified with me. You died with me. You were buried with me. You rose again with me. And you're about to be seated with me in heavenly places. That's you all who were once my enemies. God has made you now my friends through reconciling his enemies to himself. So, Look at it, verse 3. Concerning his son, who is from the seed of David, sperma of David, according to the flesh, that's hereditary heritage, designated dramatically as the son of God with power, according to the spirit of sanctification, that's the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection of the dead. Now, when Romans 1, 2, and 3 is seen in the Greek text, this is where I look at it, the writings of the prophets flows right into verse 3, peri, concerning all or about, all about, so that we have the rendering, the holy writings of the prophets, that includes the Psalms, concerning his son. In fact, this construal or this interpretation is probable because the gospel which God promised beforehand or literally preached beforehand in the writings of the prophets and the gospel that Paul proclaims are both all about God's son. It's all about God's son. It's all about his faithfulness. It's all about his blood that justifies us. And then God who preaches, allows this gospel to be proclaimed with power Kindles faith in people. Faith isn't the way that you're justified. Christ's faithfulness justifies us. His faithfulness unto death. He's the one that God delivered out of sufferings. And he's the one because he the king was delivered out of sufferings. He gives the life that he received from God to everyone. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 19. Just to make it brief. In short. Because I live, you will live also. I will live 
through the cross, through death, through burial, I will be raised from the dead by my Father. And because I live as the king whom God delivers, so you will live also, my people. Who are God's people? Thank you, other royal David. All souls are mine. You will give his name to be Yeshua, Yehoshua, Yahweh saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. The birth announcement from the highest ranking courier angel from heaven, Gabriel. Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus. Before that, Zechariah, you're going to name your son John. Zechariah said, no, we're going by the family name. And the angel said, really? Then you're going to shut up for nine months and not be able to say a word until you say the word John when he's born. How's that for you? So maybe Joseph got the point and said, Jesus it is. The name above every name. The name given by God among men whereby all mankind is saved and there isn't another one. There isn't another one. So, both the writings of the prophets, the Old Testament in its totality, and that's what that means, and the gospel of God, which Paul was designated to be a preacher of, are all about his son. Paul's opponents, it's not all about his son. It's all about doing works in order to secure justification from God. Oh, thank God Jesus died, but it's what we do to get in and what we continue to do to stay in. It is... That's the very gospel that Paul is hitting with a head-on collision to demolish. And his opponents are saying, well, we're going to the Gentiles to tell them that Christ came. Yes, his name was Jesus. We believe that. He died on the cross. And by dying on the cross, he opened the way for the Gentiles to come in to be the privileged people of God like we are. But they got to come in through the males being circumcised and then by following the Torah and the laws of Moses. So it's Christ died. Yeah, but let's put him over here. It's not all about him. It's all about Moses and all about us and all about our righteousness of our faith, not the righteousness of his faithfulness. Paul says, I, uh, I beg to differ. Is Paul's gospel being preached today? Yeah. Once in a while. It ought to be preached all the time. And so his resurrection from the dead was the resurrection of the king. He was doubly designated as royalty. And so I guess you could sing that new song, We Are Royals Too. Being royalty doesn't mean you can act like a jerk. It's quite the opposite. If you want to know what royalty looks like, Look at Jesus who laid aside his garment and put a slave's apron on and washed the filthy feet of Judas Iscariot. There's your king. Crown of thorns on his head, beaten so that his face was swollen so you couldn't recognize Yeshua of Nazareth. Mocked with a scarlet robe put upon him. Standing there, and Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And they said, we don't have a king except for Caesar. Caesar's our model of a king. He conquered this, and he conquered that, and he came back with a triumphal procession. Vercingetorix, or whatever his name was, from Gaul. He marched him through Rome, and, and they failed to realize that Jesus conquered sin. And death for all humankind. That's a pretty good military victory. But Pilate was compelled to make a little plaque. I call it Pilate's plaque. Jesus, King of the Jews. And nail it right above Jesus' head on the cross. And they said, you can't write that. That's the whole point of the controversy we're having. And he said, what I've written, I've written. 
Leave it. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And he's the king of Israel. He's the king of the Israel of God. In which God says all souls are mine. All souls are Israel. All souls are in Christ. Now. Here's the thing. And like I did last week, I'll give you the baby without the birthing process. Maybe Wednesday I'll give you more of the birth, birthing process. My friend Douglas Campbell, I never met him, so I'm just saying that because I like his book. And the Deliverance of God says, although it's overlooked, Romans 15.12 affects the closure of the main letter. That's true. Romans 15.12 and then 13 ends the main body of the letter in Paul's main argument. But in Romans 15, 12, you're going to notice something there that he is, and he goes on to say, by affirming Jesus' Davidic lineage or line through David through a citation of Isaiah eleven ten. And then he says, which is also related to Isaiah 42, 4, which is closely accompanied by the divine king's righteousness. So he says, with this reference to the root of Jesse... I see you, Jesse. <laughs> She's smiling. The root of Jesse, which resumes the Davidic claims or David's claims of 1 3 of Romans, Paul not only concludes his substantive discussion, but fashions a messianic inclusio uh, around most of the letter's discursive material. In other words, that says to me this simply Romans 1 3 speaks of Jesus as descending from David. And then being crucified and raised from dead. Romans 15, 12 refers to Jesus as the descendant of David in whom all the nations will hope. And so the whole of Romans main body of the letter from then on, Paul talks about what? His travel plans, the collection for Israel, greetings to all the peoples and all the people in Romans 16. But 15, 12 and 13 ends it all with what? A reference to Jesus Christ, the royal Messiah through the king kingly line of David in Romans 1 3 he's the one that's delivered from death and as we saw in Romans 6 7 he's the one who was justified the one who died was justified God justified the one the king through sufferings and the king turns around and gives the same life that he's received through his suffering and resurrection to all mankind, according to Romans 5.18, according to 1 Corinthians 15.22, according to 1 Timothy 4.9 and 10, according to 1 Timothy 2.3 through 6, according to Matthew 20.28 and Mark 15.45, but then again, you might have another opinion. So... The whole book of Romans is enclosed by this royal theme. Now I know uh, God kept saying to me, in a, and I don't want to say I heard an audible voice, but I kept pursuing this royal motif. And I think it's, Isaiah, it's Psalm 45. My heart keeps getting gripped with a certain theme. Now the theme, as it once was in Jeremiah 9, now it's the royal motif. So... Even more importantly is Romans 15.9 where he quotes that Christ who's going to lead a universal chorus of praise with Gentiles and Jews together as one people. A chorus of praise to the Father. He identifies this Christ with Psalm 18.49 in which David prays for deliverance as the king through his, from his enemies and from his sufferings. And so he also closes the whole book of Romans by winding down with 15.9 in which he quotes Psalm 18.49 which is explicitly stating that David is the one who needs to be saved and delivered through his sufferings. Jesus fulfilled that whole theme that runs all the way through David's Psalms, that the king gets delivered through his sufferings and from his enemies in order to then give life and unity and peace to all of his people. But the son of David has another people than the David of the Old Testament whose people were only Israel. Israel. 
The son of David can say, as Yahweh, all souls are mine. So in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. He is the savior of all mankind, especially those that believe, not excluding those who don't. So with that in mind, let's close. Remember I told you that Romans 3.21 to 3.26 is the astonishing pivot of Paul where he makes the final martial arts move. And he introduces in Romans 3.21 to 26, you have the unchained gospel. Whoever taught the kids' class last week, I want to congratulate him because my grandson Adrian was in the car afterwards, and I said, Adrian, what did you learn? And you're thinking you're going to have to pull this out of him like a tooth is being pulled. What did you learn in class? And he said, I learned in class that the unchained gospel is like a tree that grows up and produces fruit of hope rather than fear. I had to look back and say, what? Who said that, you know? And uh, so good job, whoever taught the kids that age 9 and 10 last week. And you're all doing a great job. Romans 3.21 to 26 is that unchained gospel, and it closes with 3.26 as we taught you last week. The one who God is righteous to justify by his own faithfulness is, last word in the translation in the Greek, Jesus. Jesus is the royal figure who calls upon God to be delivered through his sufferings and death, and God hears him and delivers him. Uh, The Father always hears me, Jesus said, because I always do the things that please him. So the Father hears the Son as he cries out from the cross for deliverance, and God delivers his royal Son according to the hereditary descent of David and declares him not only to be David's son and David's descendant, but God's own son by raising him from the dead. He justified the one who died. The one who died in Romans 6, 7 and Romans 8, 34 is Jesus justifying him, Jesus, by his own faithfulness. The righteous will live by his faithfulness. The righteous one in Romans 1, 17 is Jesus himself. He lives in resurrection and has righteousness and life because of his faithfulness, his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. So don't. Tell me you are justified by your faith. Tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. You're justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. God's righteousness is revealed through his son's faithfulness. So it's not a matter of Rob Bell saying love wins and this other guy coming at him and saying no God wins because obviously God wins by throwing people into hell at the end. It is something in between, but something goes much higher. God, who is love, wins. And he proposes to save all in his son. And he has done it. He is doing it. He will do it because I am that I was that I will be. I am. I always was. I will be. I have saved. I do save. I will save. I am the God who saves. So, how does the, what's the aftermath of this? And I'm doing a real quick job of this. So I'm going to give you the printed out part. And I think there is a printed out part from Wednesday. Wednesday is the official order from your pastor, if I happen to be your pastor, that says, Present arms! Presentation of arms for the apocalyptic war. It's not a matter of getting in rank. It's a matter of getting in rank and presenting arms, presenting yourselves as weapons for righteousness in this war. That means arms and all. You'll get it. I I did the edit, which is yours for the taking, only $15.95 plus postage. Now, so what does he say? What's the aftermath of this? He justifies Jesus and therefore justifies all in Romans 5. So what's the aftermath of the great pivot? Look at verse 327. Where is boasting then? Oh, now we're going to go back to those eight messages on Jeremiah 9, 23. 
Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his wealth. But let him who's going to boast, boast in the fact that he knows and understands me who exercises mercy in all the earth. Where's boasting then? If Jesus was justified by his own faithfulness and he included all of us in his death and therefore we're justified by his, where's boasting? Where is it? Boasting. No answer comes back. Just echoes throughout the Bible. This question is actually asked by the interlocutor, by Paul's opponent. He says, there's got to be boasting somewhere. Where is it then? Paul says, shut out completely. See, we don't see that in the translation. It should be punctuated. The the teacher that's posing Paul says, well, there's got to be boasting somewhere. Where is it? And Paul says, it's shut out completely, eliminated, gone. And then the teacher says, by what sort of teaching? Torah means here, what kind of teaching authorizes you to say that? What kind of teaching authorizes you to say that boasting in terms of my justification is ruled out? The word law there means Torah or teaching. By what kind of teaching? Name the title of the teaching that authorizes you to say that boasting is excluded. And he says, is it a teaching about works? And Paul says, oh, no, not at all. But by a teaching of Messiah's faithfulness. It's an authorized teaching. I can say that human boasting is eradicated from human justification and salvation by a teaching that's authorized by all the Old Testament and all of the gospel. It is the teaching of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that eradicates boasting from all human beings. It's a law or a teaching about Christ. And then verse 28, Paul says, for we, and I'd like to be included in that we. When Paul says we, I want to be there with him. We, Paul and his associates, his missionary associates to the Gentiles, We bank on the fact that a person is justified by a faithfulness apart from the works of the law. What is that faithfulness apart from the works of the law? The faithfulness of Jesus Christ by which God justified him because of his faithful death. Now, what does he goes on to say? And this is real. I'm really kind of. Sliding over this, I'm almost ashamed to do it this quick, but I'll, I'll back up and do it again some other time. That faithfulness is that of Jesus Christ by which he was justified, Romans 6, 7. But so we're all justified by his faithfulness unto death. So look at verse 29, and we'll close with Romans three twenty nine. Paul is continuing now, and he says, Or is God God only of the Jews? Now, teacher, you've got to go back into your Old Testament and answer that question. Does God promise that all the nations will come and worship before him in Psalm 22, 27? Does God have a plan for all those nations to come in? Is he a God of the Jews only? And this guy is forced to say, well, yes, of the Gentiles too. It's kind of a weak mumbling here. Well, yes, he's of the Gentiles too. So Paul then appeals to the most important verse in the Bible for the Jewish Christian or the Jew, period. Listen up, Israel. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. The Lord our God is one. 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 So Paul is appealing to that very passage, although we don't see it there. It's glaring if you see it with the eyes of the Holy Spirit. Verse 30. Since indeed, Paul says, he is one God. One God. Here, Paul refers to that Shema Israel. He is the one who justifies the circumcision, Jews under the law, from the source of faithfulness. That's Messiah's faithfulness. He justifies, liberates those of the circumcision, Jews, 
through the source or from the source of faithfulness, Messiah's faithfulness, and the same one God justifies the uncircumcision, Gentiles without the law, through the same, listen to the translation, through the same aforementioned faithfulness. Remember, it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in Romans 1.17. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in Romans 3.26. It's the king that God rescues through his sufferings, which results in life for all his people. And all his people are all, thanks Dave, you gave me the key to this message. All souls are mine. So what does he say then in verse 30? And he's actually taking Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. And that means that there's nothing in between. God's righteousness is revealed in his faithfulness, which is revealed in Christ's faithfulness. Ekpistios, ice piston, none of that relates to your faith. Both of it relates to God's faithfulness demonstrated in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, because it's Christ that he's not ashamed of. Do not be ashamed of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, says Paul to Timothy. And that means don't be ashamed of the gospel because it's all about the Lord and his righteousness. So let me read it real quick. Again, verse 29, or is God only God of the Jews? He's not also God of the Gentiles. Yes, says the, the guy's a little weak now. He's kind of like, I'm just joking because we have wonderful friends in Canada, Roland and Betty. This is like Canada. Yes, of the Gentiles too. This is America. Is he not God also of the Gentiles? And this is Canada. Yes, of the Gentiles too. Just kidding, Roland, Betty. Just kidding. And I love your anthem. It's an awesome anthem. Roland King's, his name is King, Roland King, get it? He actually sang the whole Canadian anthem out here in the hall one day. It was splendid. And so all the more I commend Betty for putting up with him. Now, so he is the one, since he indeed is one God, we both agree to that, Paul said. He's the one who justifies the circumcision, Jews under the law, from the source of Messiah's faithfulness and the uncircumcision through the same aforementioned faithfulness. So then, do we abolish the Torah, the law? Do we abolish the Torah? Paul's accused of destroying Moses' law and the whole law and the whole Old Testament. He's just accused of tearing it up. Do we abolish the law? Through this justifying faithfulness, the teacher's asking the question. So now you're going to destroy the law? Are you destroying the law, the Torah, the whole Torah? Through this message of Messiah's faithfulness? Paul says, of course not. We make the Torah stand tall, he says. That's how it actually reads. We make the Torah stand tall. Because now the Torah has a different purpose And the purpose is to be a testimony of Jesus' faithfulness. The whole law speaks about me, Jesus said. You you read it and you think that you got eternal life by avidly reading it every day. But you don't come to me that you might have life. It's all about me. It's all about me. So by the faithfulness of Christ being everything here in justification, are we destroying the whole Old Testament? No, we're making the whole Old Testament rise to its glorious splendor as being a testimony to Jesus Christ, God's own son. And so here's the launching pad to Romans 4. Paul will prove it. Let me go to the whole narrative about Abraham. Not to show that Abraham's faith was something, but to show that Jesus Christ's faithfulness is really something. Romans 4 gets... Right off here, he's talking about, let me illustrate why, we, why the Old Testament stands tall. Let's take your favorite narrative, teacher, the narrative about Abraham. And let me show you that Abraham lived a life of faithfulness that God requires of all his people today before he was circumcised and after he was circumcised. So circumcision is nothing. 
But what's really something is a life lived by a faith that works by love that God approves of because he approves of his son. So last thing I'll say, this is a launching pad to Romans 4 where the Torah, in the case of Abraham's narrative, with David corroborating it in Psalm 32 in Romans 4, 6 through 8, testifies of Messiah's justifying faithfulness. And that's what the whole Old Testament's saying. Because God preached the gospel throughout it, especially in the Psalms where the Davidic royal figure is delivered and then gives life to all his people. So we've got tracks to run on to Romans 4, which is a notoriously difficult passage because it looks like it's a justification by faith narrative, and it's not that. It's a justification by Christ's faithfulness narrative. No wonder the angel said to John, who started to genuflect to the angel, don't do that. Don't do it. I'm just a messenger sent from God. I'm a fellow servant with you. He then said, worship God. Because the whole spirit of prophecy, the whole spirit of all the prophetic writings is the testimony of Jesus. Amen. We're going to go with the full boat this week with Wednesday and Thursday and stay tuned for further announcements for the weeks to come. Our Mason, below the Mason-Dixon line folks are coming pretty soon, so be ready to welcome them to roll out the red carpet. And thank you all for your excellent attentiveness today. If I wanted to do what I had to do today, I would have been here for three more hours, so I cut it. I cut it down. Just gave you the baby, no birthing process. Thanks for your attentiveness. I think that doctrine sheet's out there. Present arms. All right.